It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo, but I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Hello everyone, welcome to the Origins Podcast. This is episode 119. It's been quite a while coming, and this episode is entitled, It's One Year Since the Bloody Flood. everyone, it's been quite a while since the last podcast, but that's due to a number of factors, and I'd like to say thank you to all of those who emailed me and asked me if I was okay and how things are going. So basically, it's been school holidays here in Australia, so my wife has been off work for about five, six weeks, and we went off to New Zealand to spend three weeks with relatives over there and had a lovely time. We timed the holiday because at the moment it's just on 12 months since the flood which devastated our home last year and the memories were quite bad and of course we had to live the whole thing through again on the television through all the anniversary specials that they had. Of course the bad memories of the flood will eventually fade in time but my wife and I decided that the memories that we're going to preserve are the memories of all those people that came and helped us unasked for unsolicited help which was absolutely amazing family, friends, old and new, and complete strangers who just came up and gave us a hand in our hour of need. And of course, I will never forget the help that the people who listen to the Origins and the Mysteries Abound podcast gave to us in the weeks after the flood. Your generosity and outpouring of support was truly inspiring and will never be forgotten. Thank you all. Well, 2011's gone and 2012's here. Isn't that the amazing thing about our calendar system? Every now and then we can make a fresh start. Anyway, I thought I could get my act together quicker than I did last year, but the trauma of the flood, rebuilding the home, getting things organised, putting your life back together was much, much more difficult than I anticipated. So I wasn't able to do the podcast as regularly and as often as I would like. Hopefully this year things will be better and I can get things done on a more regular basis. Anyway, that's enough reflection. Let's get on with the show. The first article for this episode comes from the LiveScience.com website. The molecule that may have given breath to Earth's first life has been discovered. Earth's first molecules of oxygen, which led to the development of life on the planet, may have relied on a newly identified enzyme, scientists reported this week. Around 2.4 billion years ago, the planet experienced a huge spike in atmospheric oxygen levels. Scientists have long held that this rise in oxygen, called the Great Oxygenation Event, was tied to the arrival of the first photosynthetic organisms. But nobody knew why these oxygen-producing organisms emerged in the first place. 
Oxygen is toxic, so why would a living organism generate oxygen? Study lead author Gustavo Centano Anolis, a biologist at the University of Illinois, said in a statement. Something must have triggered this. To get to the bottom of the mystery, he and his colleagues analysed protein folds in nearly 1,000 organisms across every domain of life. A fold, he explained, is a structurally and functionally distinct region of a protein that is usually unaffected by mutations or other changes to the amino acids that make up the protein. Because of this consistency, protein folds are reliable markers of long-term evolutionary patterns. With their analysis, the researchers created a timeline of protein history, which they calibrated using various microbial fossils. They found that the oldest oxygen-based process involved the production of pyridoxal, the active form of vitamin B6, which is essential to the activity of many protein enzymes in the body. So, how did ancient organisms get the essential pyridoxal? The researchers date pyridoxal back to some 2.9 billion years ago, the same time that the enzyme manganese catalase appeared. Manganese catalase breaks down hydrogen peroxide into water and oxygen. Early organisms may have come across this enzyme when trying to cope with environmental hydrogen peroxide, which some geochemists believe was abundant in Earth's glaciers at the time and was released by the bombardment of solar radiation. The organisms essentially got the oxygen they needed to produce pyridoxal by breaking down the glacial hydrogen peroxide with manganese catalase. Satano Anolis notes that the findings fit in with other recent studies, suggesting that the oxygen-based respiration began 300 to 400 million years before the Great Oxidation event. The timing works because oxygen production was probably occurring long before the oxygen spike, he said. With its ability to degrade hydrogen peroxide and create oxygen, Manganese catalase is likely the molecular culprit for the rise of oxygen on the planet. And as a companion article to this story, I also found this at thelivescience.com. Seven theories on the origins of life. Each of these is a short paragraph that goes with an image. If you'd like to see the image, visit the show notes at www.origins.info. Click on the link to episode 119 in the Origins show notes. Life on Earth began more than 3 billion years ago, evolving from the most basic of microbes into a dazzling array of complexity over time. But how did the first organisms on the only known home to life in the universe develop from the primordial soup? Here are science's theories on the origins of life on Earth. Number 7. Electric Spark Electric sparks can generate amino acids and sugars from an atmosphere loaded with water, methane, ammonia and hydrogen, as was shown in the famous Miller-Urey experiment reported in 1953, suggesting that lightning might have helped create the key building blocks of life on Earth in its early days. Over millions of years, larger and more complex molecules could form, although research since then has revealed the early atmosphere of Earth was actually hydrogen poor. Scientists have suggested that volcanic clouds in the early atmosphere might have held methane, ammonia and hydrogen and been filled with lightning as well. Number 6 community clay. The first molecules of life might have met on clay, according to an idea elaborated by organic chemist Alexander Graham Cairns-Smith at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. These surfaces might not only have concentrated these organic compounds together, 
but also helped organise them into patterns, much like our genes do now. The main role of DNA is to store information on how other molecules should be arranged. Genetic sequences in DNA are essentially instructions on how amino acids should be arranged in proteins. Ken Smith suggests that mineral crystals in clay could have arranged organic molecules into organised patterns. After a while, organic molecules took over this job and organised themselves. Number 5. Deep Sea Vents The deep sea vent theory suggests that life may have begun at submarine hydrothermal vents, spewing key hydrogen-rich molecules. Their rocky nooks could then have concentrated these molecules together and provided mineral catalysts for critical reactions. Even now, these vents, rich in chemical and thermal energy, sustain vibrant ecosystems. Number 4. A chilly start. Ice might have covered the oceans three billion years ago, as the sun was about a third less luminous than it is now. This layer of ice, possibly hundreds of feet thick, might have protected fragile organic compounds in the water below from ultraviolet light and destruction from cosmic impacts. The cold might have also helped these molecules to survive longer, allowing key reactions to happen. Number 3. An RNA world. Nowadays, DNA needs proteins in order to form, and proteins require DNA to form. So how could these have formed without each other? The answer may be RNA, which can store information like DNA, serve as an enzyme like proteins, and help create both DNA and proteins. Later DNA and proteins succeeded this RNA world because they are more efficient. RNA still exists and performs several functions in organisms, including acting as an on-off switch for some genes. The question still remains how RNA got here in the first place. And while some scientists think the molecule could have spontaneously arisen on Earth, others say that was very unlikely to have happened. Other nucleic acids other than RNA have been suggested as well, such as the more esoteric PNA or TNA. Number 2. Simple Beginnings Instead of developing from more complex molecules such as RNA, life might have begun with smaller molecules interacting with each other in cycles of reactions. These might have been contained in simple capsules akin to cell membranes, and over time more complex molecules that performed these reactions better than the smaller ones could have evolved. Scenarios dubbed metabolism-first models, as opposed to the gene-first model of the RNA world hypothesis. Number 1. Panspermia Perhaps life did not begin on Earth at all, but was brought here from elsewhere in space, a notion known as panspermia. For instance, Rocks regularly get blasted off Mars by cosmic impacts and a number of Martian meteorites have been found on Earth that some researchers have controversially suggested brought microbes over here, potentially making us all Martians originally. Other scientists have even suggested that life might have hitchhiked on comets from other star systems. However, even if this concept were true, The question of how life began on Earth would then only change to how life began elsewhere in space.
Even though Christmas was a few weeks ago, we can still do a Christmas story. Making the Rounds with Santa Claus Smith. And this comes from the blog's smithsonianmag.com website. On the evening of July 18, 1935, in an America still crushed in the coils of the Great Depression, an old man with a long white beard appeared on the front lawn of a farm off Route 1 in Metamora, Indiana. It was late, nearly dusk, and when the farmer's wife came out to ask what the man wanted, he begged her for a piece of bread. He had a very kind face, she wrote some days later. And it has always been my custom to give to tramps, if I have anything I can handy give. He was carrying a pack on his back, so I told him to set it down on the lawn. I had a nice warm supper cooked, so I served him on the lawn. He seemed to be very hungry. I gave him a second serving. When he finished, he took from his pack two checks, copied from brown paper. Looked like they were cut from paper bags. He came forward and handed these to me with his plate. According to this woman, his face was so kind, it is hard to believe he meant anything false. But when she looked down at the paper checks, she saw that one had been written for $25,000 and the other for $1,000. More than a year later, on October 23, 1936, the same old man wandered into a lunchroom on a highway outside Columbus, Texas. He told the waitress he had no money, but asked her for a cup of coffee. Feeling sorry for him, she took him into the kitchen and fed him a bowl of stew and a jelly roll with his coffee. The old man ate his fill, and while the waitress was serving other customers, took another piece of paper from his pack, scribbled on it in indelible pencil, and slipped it beneath his coffee cup before taking up his pack and hurrying off into the night. The waitress returned to find that the slip of paper was a blank cheque for $27,000, written on the Irving National Bank of New York and signed John S. Smith of Riga, Latvia, Europe. On the back he had scribbled the words, Fill in your name, send to bank. Four days after that, John S. Smith was in Yuma, Arizona, where he left a cheque for $2,000 in exchange for a cup of coffee. Early in November, in Indianola, Mississippi, he handed another farmer's wife two cheques totaling $26,000. And in December, in Fort Worth, a young woman sitting in a parked car was approached by an elderly bearded man who begged her for a nickel. She gave him a dime, prompting him to use her fender as a desk and write a cheque for $950. When the girl laughed and thanked him, he took the cheque back, tore it up, and wrote out another one for $26,000. That's for your sweet smile, he said. In all between 1934 and 1940, the mysterious John S. Smith travelled as far north as Clinton, Connecticut, and as far west as Los Angeles, scattering pencil and paper checks written on the Irving National for sums totalling several million dollars. He paid as little as $90 for what a minister's wife in Terre Haute, Indiana insisted was a good hot lunch, and as much as $600,000 for a hamburger cooked for him by a waitress in New Iberia, Louisiana. He paid more for food than he did for the rides he sometimes hitched, and more to women than to men. He also showed an affinity for cats, leaving cheques totalling $5,000 to a woman in South Dakota to pay for upkeep on the black-and-white cat named Smiles. All his cheques were written on brown paper, often spotted with grease, and they shared several other distinctive characteristics. Handwriting in a vaguely Gothic style, and the misspelling of thousand as thousand, and the crude symbol of a smiley face, with pencil dots for eyes and nose. Eccentric though he clearly was, John S. Smith was only one of the hundreds of thousands of men who took to the roads and rails of the United States between the coming of the railways and the 1930s, an era when, for all its harshness and its frequent tragedy, 
the travelling life was regarded by many romantic young men as the ultimate test of manhood. Some travelled because they had to, because they were craftsmen who had grown up in towns too small to make full use of their services. Others were itinerants who met the need for seasonal labour on farms. And a smaller but far from insignificant number drifted because it suited them. To those who idealised them, hobos and tramps were the last of the rugged individualists, the writer Richard Wormser notes. But the reality of the hobo world was often far different. In a life in which a man might go days without food, weeks without a decent place to sleep, and months without clothing, Jack London, who chose tramp life as a teenager, saw it for what it was. I was in the pit, the abyss, the human cesspool, the schools and charnel house of our civilization. This is the part that society chooses to ignore. What drove John S. Smith onto the roads is harder to know. He confided to a woman in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, that he had left home in 1934 because the depression had got on his mind. She suspected, rather, that he had got loose from an institution and has been lost ever since. The most romantic depiction of the tramp can be found in a letter written by a young woman from San Antonio who received a cheque for $6,000 from him. He stated that he purposely wore ragged clothes and rewarded those who helped him, she recorded. That letter and others like it found its way into the files of the Irving Trust, a New York institution based at 1 Wall Street, the successor of the defunct Irving National Bank and the unwilling recipient for reams of correspondence that flowed in from people who encountered John S. Smith. Most of the letters were accompanied by Smith's grease-stained slips of rough brown paper. They inquired whether the cheques could be cashed and adopted a variety of tones, some suspicious, some disbelieving, not a few filled with hope. I received these cheques from an old gentleman who ate breakfast at our home, a Texas farmer wrote in December 1937. I asked the bank here to handle the same for me and they seemed to think they were no good. This man had no reason to give us these cheques knowing they were no good. So I still believe he wanted us to have this amount of money, and we sure need it. Wishing you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. According to the great New Yorker writer, Joseph Mitchell, who was given access to the Tramp's odd file in 1940, in exchange for his promise not to name any of the hopeful letter writers, the clerks at the Irving Trust devoted considerable effort to solving the many mysteries of John S. Smith. First they puzzled over the problem that the Irving National Bank had gone out of existence in 1923, 11 years before the first cheques drawn on it were written. Did this mean the old tramp had long ago kept an account there? They searched their records, together with those of the old Irving National, for any that might have belonged to a man who had been born in Riga, Latvia, Europe. None could be found under any name at any date. Next believing that Smith might once have worked in their building as a janitor or guard, they scoured their employment rolls. Again, they found no trace of any John S. Smith. In the end, Mitchell noted, the trust officials concluded that Smith was a simple-minded, good-hearted old man who feels that he should reward those treating him with kindness. They made no attempt to trace him or have him arrested, since there was no evidence of forgery or fraud, and he seemed never to attempt to cash a cheque or actually buy anything with one. The bank people call him Santa Claus Smith and wish that he had millions of dollars on deposit, Mitchell added, and he noted that from time to time a bank official would pull the Smith file and amuse himself by tracing the tramp's peregrinations on a map. For a short time it seemed the mystery might be solved. A letter written by John S. Smith, postmarked Wabash, Indiana, and, Mitchell observed, scribbled wildly on the back of seven lunchroom menus, was delivered to the bank. Sadly, while it began Irving National Bank of New York, dear sir, it then became illegible. 
The letter had apparently been kept in the tramp's pockets for a while and had become stained with grease and tobacco crumbs. After that, it appeared to have been dipped in water, reducing Smith's scribbles to nothing more than purple blots. Still, one of the bank officials fetched a magnifying glass and, after a considerable amount of agonising labour, Mitchell wrote, made out a handful of phrases. These were, Listen, those three waitress. Put something in that bank. In USA for 26 years, 30 years, 22. Mortgage and now. To see about cats. Waitress girl in that place in Ohio. And all over USA. Attached to the letter were two of Smith's checks one for $15,000 and the other for $6,000. Both were written on the Irving National Bank and both were made payable to the Irving National Bank. Somehow it seemed a fitting end to the tale of one old tramp's perpetual circuit of the country. The Mariana Trench, located in the Pacific Ocean off the eastern coasts of Japan and the Philippines, at a depth of around 6.8 miles below sea level, is famous for being the deepest point on the planet's surface. Now to add to the Mariana Trench's fame, marine geophysicists recently mapped a set of surprising seafloor features nearby. At least four underwater bridges span the depths of the trench where the Pacific Plate dives under the Philippine Plate. It wasn't common knowledge that these bridges occurred at all, says James Gardner, a marine geophysicist at the University of New Hampshire, who found the structures. This is really the first time they've been mapped in any detail. From the news.yahoo.com, seafloor bridges found to span Earth's deepest trench, and it's by Crystal Gammon. As the Pacific and Philippine tectonic plates converge, they carry seamounts, mountains on the seafloor that don't reach the water's surface, and other features with them towards the trench itself. Some of these plough into other structures on the opposite side of the trench, in a sort of slow-motion seamount collision, or into the trench wall itself. The result is an underwater bridge that stretches across the Mariana Trench, Gardner and a colleague found four of these structures, some rising as high as 6,600 feet above the trench and measuring up to 47 miles long. The largest of the four, Dutton Ridge, was mapped in low resolution in the 1980s, but scientists hadn't noticed any other similar structures in the area. Because the seafloor in the region is riddled with seamounts, guyots, which are flat-topped seamounts and other features, Many of them part of the Magellan Seamount chain, Gardner suspected he could find other bridges. As the Pacific Plate gets thrust down underneath the Philippine Plate, it wouldn't be totally unexpected that you'd find these things bridging across the trench and being accreted to the inner wall, Gardner told Our Amazing Planet. Using a multi-beam echo sounder, a tool that uses sonar to measure the topography of the ocean floor in detail, Gardner and a colleague mapped a large swath of the ocean floor surrounding the trench. They presented their findings at the December meeting of the American Geophysical Union in San Francisco. What the bridges mean for the ocean floor and its occupants is unclear, Gardner said. I would certainly expect Dutton Ridge and the others to have different fauna and flora than the trench floor because they stand about 2 kilometres or 1.2 miles higher, Gardner said but the extreme depth would make it hard to monitor the biology or seafloor currents in the area. In fact, the pressure at the bottom of the Mariana Trench is more than 8 tonnes per square inch and water temperatures hover just above freezing, making it a challenging environment for researchers and sea life alike. The long-term fate of the bridges is also unknown, Gardner said. 
Dutton Ridge, the northernmost of the four bridges, has settled in over the Mariana Trench and seems to be choking in the plate boundary for now, Gardner said. He also found evidence suggesting that the trench may have already swallowed up other similar bridges. Whether and when Dutton Ridge and the other three bridges will plunge to the same end isn't clear. And with the Pacific and Philippine plates creeping steadily toward each other at a rate of less than an inch a year, we aren't likely to find out any time soon. And also from the news.yahoo.com, astronomers see more planets than stars in the galaxy. The more astronomers look for other worlds, the more they find that it is a crowded and crazy cosmos. They think planets easily outnumber stars in our galaxy, and they are even finding them in the strangest of places. And they have only begun to count. Three studies released on Wednesday in the journal Nature and at the American Astronomical Society's conference in Austin, Texas, demonstrate an extrasolar real estate boom. One study shows that in our Milky Way, most stars have planets. And since there are a lot of stars in our galaxy, about a hundred billion, that means a lot of planets. We're finding exciting potpourri of things we didn't even think could exist, said Harvard University astronomer Lisa Kaltenegger, including planets that mirror Star Wars Luke Skywalker's home planet, with twin suns and a mini-star system with a dwarf sun and shrunken planets. We're awash in planets where 17 years ago we weren't even sure there were planets outside of our solar system, said Kaltenegger, who wasn't involved in the new research. Astronomers are finding other worlds using three different techniques and peering through telescopes in space and on the ground. Confirmed planets outside our solar system called exoplanets now number well over 700. Still to be confirmed ones are in the thousands. NASA's new Kepler Planet Hunting Telescope in space is discovering exoplanets that are in a zone friendly to life and detecting planets as small as Earth or even tinier. That is moving the field of looking for some kind of life outside Earth from science fiction towards plain science. One study in Nature this week figures that the Milky Way averages at least 1.6 large planets per star, and that is likely a dramatic underestimate. That study is based on only one intricate and time-consuming method of planet hunting that uses several South American, African and Australian telescopes. Astronomers look for increases in brightness of distant stars that indicate planets between Earth and that pulsating star. That technique usually only finds bigger planets and is good at finding those further away from their stars, sort of like our Saturn and Uranus. Kepler and a different ground-based telescope technique are finding planets closer to their stars. Putting these methods together, the number of worlds in our galaxy is probably much closer to two or more planets per star, said the Nature Study author Arnold Cassin of the Astrophysical Institute in Paris. Dan Wertheimer, chief scientist at the University of California, Berkeley's Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence program, and who wasn't part of the studies, was thrilled. It's great to know there are planets out there that we can point our telescopes at. Kepler also found three rocky planets, tinier than Earth, that are circling a dwarf star that itself is only a bit bigger than Jupiter. They are so close to their small star that they are too hot for life. It's like you took your shrink ray gun and you set it to seven times smaller and zapped the planetary system, said California Institute of Technology astronomer John Johnson, co-author of the study presented Wednesday at the Astronomy Conference. Because it is so hard to see these size planets, they must be pretty plentiful, Johnson said. It's kind of like cockroaches. 
If you see one, then there are dozens hiding. It's not just the number or size of planets, but where they are found. Scientists once thought systems with two stars were just too chaotic to have planets nearby. But so far, astronomers have found three different systems where planets have two suns, something that a few years ago seemed like purely Star Wars movie magic. Nature must like to form planets, because it's forming them in places that are kind of difficult to do, said San Diego State University astronomer Professor William Welsh, who wrote a study about planets with two stars that's also published in the journal Nature. The gravity of two stars makes the area near them unstable, Welsh said. So astronomers thought that if a planet formed in that area, it would be torn apart. Late last year, Kepler telescope found one system with two stars. It was considered a freak. Then Welsh used Kepler to find two more. Now Welsh figures such planetary systems, while not common, are not rare either. It just feels like it's inevitable that Kepler is going to come up with a habitable Earth-sized planet in the next couple of years, Caltex Johnson said. For the next two stories, you may want to visit the show notes at www.origins.info. And remember, Origins is spelt with a Z on the end, because both of these have some remarkable photos. The first story, which comes from the www.discoveryon.info website, is entitled The Remarkable Night Flowering Orchid Has Been Discovered. And you want to go to the show notes to have a look at the orchid, of course. A team of botanists has described an orchid species that flower at night, the first of its kind known to science. The plant, Bulbophyllum nocturnum, was discovered by a Dutch researcher during an expedition to New Britain, an island near Papua New Guinea. Experts said the remarkable species is the only orchid known to consistently flower at night, but why it has adopted this behaviour remains a mystery. It was so unexpected because there are so many species of orchids, and not one was known to be pollinated at night, says Andre Schutman, senior researcher and orchid expert at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Kew, told BBC News. It was quite remarkable to find one after so many years of orchid research that is night flowering, he said. The specimen was discovered by co-author Ed de Vogel during a field trip in a region of lowland rainforest on the southwest Asian island. Although the tiny Bulbophyllum nocturnum is the first known night-flowering orchid, it is not uncommon for plants to flower at night. Most orchids, though, flower both day and night. Though it is not clear exactly what pollinates Bulbophyllum nocturnum, scientists think nocturnal flies carry out the job. The specimen has been identified as belonging to the Bulbophyllum genus, which, with about 2,000 species, is the largest group in the orchid family. Schutman said the exact reason why this orchid only flowered at night would remain a mystery until further field studies had been completed. The findings appear in the Botanical Journal of the Linnaean Society. And the second article, for which I recommend a visit to the show notes, is entitled Staring into the Beautiful Cold-Blooded Eyes of Reptiles. And it's from the environmentalgraffiti.com. And this is 12 images in a slideshow of the most beautiful colours and patterns you'll probably ever see in eyes. The eyes of lizards and other reptiles are often thought of as beady. Perhaps it's because of the cold-blooded nature of such creatures. Yet, if you take time to observe them closely, you'll find that they are among nature's most beautiful creations. We've found 12 amazing images of reptilian eyes to prove it. So if you'd like to have a look, everyone, 
visit the show notes there. Worth a look. The first typewriter was introduced to the United States in 1868 by Christopher Latham Scholes. His first attempt to build a typing device consisted of a crude and sluggish machine that was far from perfect. The design of the first typewriter used letters and characters on the ends of rods which were called type bars. When a key was struck, the type bar would swing up and hit the ink-coated tape which would transfer the image onto the paper. From the www.todayifoundout.com website, an article by Samantha. The Origin of the QWERTY Keyboard The original design of the keyboard positioned keys in alphabetical order in two rows. Makes sense, right? Well, this arrangement caused the type bars of the most commonly used combination of the letters of the alphabet, TH and ST, to be positioned close together, so that when the keys were hit right after the other with a speed faster than a snail, the keys would jam. The attempt to solve this malfunction resulted in a rearrangement of keys. In 1868, in collaboration with educator Amos Densmore, the brother of Scholl's chief financial backer, Scholl's arranged the letters on the keyboard for better spacing between the popular keys used in combination and not-so-popular keys, making it difficult for people to find the letters they needed to type efficiently. Some people assumed Scholes did this to slow typists down so they wouldn't jam his sluggish machine. However, his motive was the opposite. Someone who mastered this new key arrangement would actually be able to type faster because the keys wouldn't jam. This was the beginning of the QWERTY keyboard which first appeared in 1872. The first typewriter machine found its way on the market in 1874 through Remington and Sons. The device was called the Remington No. 1. You're probably thinking it sold out in minutes since it was the latest and greatest technological device to be mass-produced. Truth is, most people ignored it. Sure, the machine still had some quirks and Shells had yet to figure out ideal customers for his invention, but in the late 1870s, The idea of mechanical writing was just plain strange for most people. The accepted norm was to write letters in legible longhand and many people found mechanical writing offensive. Scholes figured his device would appeal to clergymen and men of letters first and then he'd branch out to the general public. He didn't even consider its use in business. All of these factors probably played a part in the typewriter's initial lack of sales. Four years later, after modifications to the arrangement of the keyboard, Remington and Sons produced the new Remington No. 2 model. 
The Remington No. 2 included the arrangement of keys we use today, along with the ability to type both capital and lowercase letters. The first model of the typewriter only typed capital letters by using the shift key. The shift key received its name because it caused the carriage to shift position in order to type either a lowercase or capital letter, which were on the same type bar. Although the shift key we use on our keyboards today does not cause the machine to shift mechanically, the name has stuck. As the typewriter rose in popularity, people stopped complaining about the weird arrangement of keys and started memorising the keyboard and learning how to type efficiently. Although other alternate keyboards tried to break onto the market, most people decided to stay with the QWERTY keyboard and none of the other typewriting machines proved successful. Then in the early 1930s, Professor August Dvorak of Washington State University set out to develop a more user-friendly keyboard. He redesigned the keyboard so all of the vowels and the five most commonly used consonants were arranged on the home row. A-O-E-U-I-D, H-T-N-S. Although the design required a typist to alternate hands to type most words, with the Dvorak keyboard, a person could type approximately 400 of the English language's most common words just by using the keys of the home row compared to 100 words on the QWERTY keyboard. In addition, using the Dvorak keyboard, a typist's fingers would not have to travel as far as they did on Scholz's keyboard to type the majority of words. Dvorak set out to prove his machine was superior to Scholz's, but his keyboard never caught on. Many of the studies used to test the effectiveness of his keyboard were flawed or were deemed a conflict of interest since Dvorak conducted them himself. A US General Services Administration 1953 study of Dvorak's keyboard determined it didn't matter which keyboard was used, a typist could either type fast or they couldn't. Therefore, the majority of people didn't want to commit the time or resources it would take to be trained on a new keyboard, so Dvorak's typewriter never really appealed to the majority of consumers, and the QWERTY keyboard persevered through to today and for the foreseeable future. And as is the norm with this website, there are also a bonus set of factoids to go with the story. E. Remington & Sons, the company that mass-produced the first typewriter, was best known for their firearms. What kind of word is QWERTY? It looks like a bunch of random letters thrown together to me. A made-up word by an elementary school kid who has not yet learned the rule that U follows Q in the majority of words. And what kind of name is QWERTY for a keyboard anyway? Well, turns out the name isn't so random and the lack of the U makes sense, considering... The name QWERTY comes from the first six letters of the first row of keys on the standard keyboard. Some speculated that another reason the original typewriter met resistance was when it was first introduced to the world was because poor spellers could no longer hide their ignorance by poor handwriting. Using the QWERTY keyboard, you can type the word typewriter using only the top row of keys. Author Mark Twain was one of the first people to purchase the early typewriter and is probably the first author to submit a typed manuscript to his publisher. The least expensive typewriter produced in the 1800s cost only $1 and was appropriately named the Dollar Typewriter. Scholz's first attempt to create a typewriting machine was a crude piece of work made of part of an old table. A circular piece of glass, a telegraph key, a piece of carbon paper and a piano wire. An improved prototype of this device resembled a toy piano and is now in the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Frank McGurran, a court stenographer from Salt Lake City, is considered the first person to memorise the QWERTY keyboard and master touch typing, as opposed to the hunt and peck method. He rose to fame when he participated in typing contests and demonstrations across the country and caused people to take interest not only in the QWERTY keyboard, but in mastering the touch typing method. The alphanumeric keypad used on many cell phones today is called a half QWERTY keyboard. A quote from Dr. August Dvorak, 
Changing the keyboard format is like proposing to reverse the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule, discard every moral principle and ridicule motherhood. At this point in the podcast, I'd just like to say thank you to those people who have become friends of the podcasts and have made a donation to help the podcasts in their production. I know it's been a long time since I've done one, but some kind people have donated anyway. I'd like to say thank you to Rob Slee, uh, also thank you to Shay Stevens, um, James Mullick, and uh, let me see, Philip Osterkamp, and last but not least, David Brown. Thank you everyone for your donation to the podcast. It's greatly appreciated. And I'd also like to say a big thank you to those people who have supported the podcast by buying some of my images through the Fine Art America website. And of course the links to these can be found at the show notes. www.origins.info And a big hello to Bob who bought a lovely image of a church that I had taken a photograph of in New Zealand. Bob presented this image to his wife as a gift and the story behind it, which I won't tell you on the podcast, is very, very romantic. Just say my wife was extremely impressed when I told her what Bob had done. Bob, I'm sure your wife greatly appreciated it. Good on you, mate. Dear Word Detective, I was watching a documentary to do with the travels of Queen Victoria as a young child. At one house they visited, the ceiling of the dining room had a plaster relief of horses and figures upon it. The comment was made that the plaster for this relief was made with alcohol, and they wondered if this is where the modern reference for being plastered, as in very drunk, came from. Is there any truth in this? Barb McKeon from the www.worddetective.com website, the origin of the word plastered. I seriously doubt it, but I've learned that it's best not to dismiss such theories without investigation. So I actually went looking for anything on the internet that might connect alcohol in plaster to the term plastered, meaning very drunk. I didn't get very far because I couldn't even find anything indicating that alcohol was ever used as an ingredient in plaster. The only references I found were to something called polyvinyl alcohol plaster, which is applied to the walls as a form of insulation, but I doubt that was around in Victoria's day. But after reading about plaster for an hour or so, I am impressed with the range of things people mix into it so alcohol in plaster would not be much of a stretch. Plaster itself is an interesting word. It's derived from the Latin emplastrum, which meant both the kind of plaster used in building, water mixed with gypsum or lime and inert filler, and a medicinal plaster, a medicinal substance, for example ointment, applied to a bandage and stuck to the skin to cover a wound or other injury. The key qualities of plaster for our purposes here is that it's sticky and that it thoroughly covers something. Plastered, in addition to simply meaning covered with plaster, is a popular synonym for very drunk. According to slang etymologist Paul Dixon, drunk bears the distinction of having more synonyms than any other word in English. His collection called appropriately drunk the Definitive Drinker's Dictionary lists more than 3,000 of them, from accidentally horizontal to zui, which is apparently Chinese for blotto. This is, by the way, a fascinating and frequently hilarious book, far more than a mere list, from the same pen that produced the magisterial The Dixon Baseball Dictionary and several other lexicographic classics. Plaster as a verb appeared in the 14th century, initially meaning both to medically treat with a plaster or to apply plaster to walls, etc. The plaster a wall sense developed by the 16th century, the colloquial meaning of cover a surface with objects to display widely, 
still in use today. Plaster also developed the figurative sense of mix or pound into a soft mass, as if mixing plaster, which led to plaster meaning to strike with heavy blows, to defeat utterly, to shell or bomb a target extensively, and to mangle a bird with shot from a shotgun. Plastered in the sense of very drunk first appeared in print, as far as we know, around 1902, and there are several theories as to its origin. One ties it to the medicinal kind of plaster. The theory that a drunk has been medicated and is feeling no pain. A more intriguing possibility, as reported by Paul Dixon, was inadvertently raised by the head of the Arizona La and Plaster Institute in 1956 when he objected to the use of plastered to mean drunk. You don't say a person is shingled, painted or landscaped. Then why say he is plastered, asked the Institute's spokesperson. The New York Times replied that the term has nothing to do with plasterers and referred to a bird riddled with shot. My sense is that plastered, meaning very drunk, it came initially from this blasted bird sense and subsequently incorporated the more general senses of badly beaten and, of course, thoroughly bombed. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website and the bandwidth was provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. And if you're listening to the podcast today with some good audio equipment and you're noticing it sounds like there's a bit of a background hiss, it's actually not the recording, it's coming in from outside. The wind today is quite strong and the, the wind blowing through the trees is creating like a background hissing sound. Anyway, to bring the podcast to a close, an article from the www.daminteresting.com written by Alan Bellows, Bound by Tradition. On the 20th of October 1998, the Ziquiang Shoe Factory in Harbin, China, sent out a press release stating that they were officially halting production of a curious variety of footwear known as lotus shoes. This announcement may appear pedestrian to Western eyes, but in a way it was a symbolic epitaph for a bizarre custom which had been in practice in parts of China for about a thousand years, a process known as footbinding. Until the mid-20th century, a girl born into an affluent family in China was almost certain to be taken aside, sometime in her first few years, to begin a process of sculpting her feet into tiny, pointed lotus feet. This body modification was attended to attract suitors and flaunt one's upper-crusty status. The culture at large considered these reshaped feet to be beautiful, and the dainty gait that resulted from such radically reshaped extremities was seen as alluring, but the process of producing lotus feet was grisly, problematic and led to lifelong podiatric problems. The invention of foot binding is not well documented, but the earliest known written records of the practice date back to the southern Tang dynasty, around 937 AD. Some historians believe that the tradition arose when women started imitating the imperial concubine, fragrant girl, who was known for her diminutive wrapped feet. Others attribute the tradition to a troupe of court dancers who pioneered the process around the same time. Regardless of its origins, these re-engineered feet became fashionable among upper-class Chinese families around a thousand years ago and was in practice until somewhat recently. Generations of trial and error led practitioners of footbinding to master the craft of twisting and reshaping a young girl's soul. Footbinding was usually conducted in winter months so that the cold could be used to help numb the injuries and prevent infection. Sometime after a daughter of the well-to-do turned two years old, and generally before they turned five, 
The young girl and her malleable skeleton were taken aside by an elder female family member or a professional footbinder to initiate the foot-altering process. Though there was an old saying that a mother couldn't love her daughter and her daughter's feet at the same time, the process was seldom carried out by the mother personally because she would likely find it difficult to ignore the child's considerable distress. To begin the foot binding process, the foot binder would gently soak the child's feet in a solution of animal blood and herbs. Her toenails were trimmed and groomed and her feet were thoroughly massaged. Once the skin was softened and the muscles were relaxed, the foot binder would curl the child's toes down towards the sole of the foot as far as the bones would allow. The binder would then curl the toes farther than the bones would allow, snapping the toddler's phalanges and forming a kind of twisted foot fist. No manner of pain relief was employed during this process, so the binder was required to disregard any agonised screams. Next, the arch was broken. The girl's foot, now a suitably sculptable sack of bones, was wrapped in long bandages which had been soaked in the secret recipe of herbs and bloods. With each winding, the bindings were pulled as tightly as possible, drawing the ball and the heel of the foot increasingly closer and tapering the end of the foot into a point. The wrappings were then thoroughly stitched and allowed to tighten as they dried. Then onto the other foot. Afterwards, the girl's feet were periodically unwrapped to clean the crevices, trim the oddly oblique toenails and remove any dead flesh. The foot maintainer might opt to peel the toenails off altogether if they were becoming sites for infection. Sometimes a toe or two would fall off during this process, leaving even more room for reshaping. The girl's feet were then rewrapped even tighter than before causing her footprint to shrink further as the bones slowly fused into their new configuration. Occasionally girls' feet would fester and blood poisoning from gangrene would be a cause for concern, but an estimated 90% survived the process. Once the feet reached their target petiteness of 7.5 centimetres or about 3 inches, the unsightly bindings were adorned with embroidered silk slippers. When a perfectly lotus-foot lady was inserted into society, she became a sought-after mate. Her reconfigured feet were made obvious by her distinct manner of walking, a swaying shuffle which came to be known as the lotus gait. Bound feet were considered to be sexually exciting to men, and girls who had them were much more likely to land a prestigious marriage. Sex manuals describe numerous erotic acts married couples could perform involving lotus feet, but men were warned never to look upon the feet without their shoes and bindings, lest the aesthetic be destroyed forever. Moreover, unwrapped lotus feet were said to have a powerful and disagreeable odour, owing to the accumulation of bacteria among the unnatural folds of the deformed feet. Dainty is dandy, but necrotic is not erotic. Although the practice was initially limited to upper-crust families, people of lesser prestige soon began to conform with the tradition. A lotus-footed wife was not only coveted for her signature locomotion, but her injuries also tended to keep her from wandering far from home. Such women tended to forego participation in society and politics, owing to their restricted mobility, and they became dependent upon their husbands and families for the rest of their lives. In spite of their high cultural status, their existence consisted of little more than domestic seclusion. Footbinding remained a popular practice in parts of China until efforts to ban it arose around the turn of the 20th century. Anti-footbinding reformers educated the populace regarding the outside world's view of footbinding as barbaric and taught the practical advantages of unmangled feet. Fear of international ridicule was a powerful motivator, and in a single generation the practice was almost eradicated. Yet some stubborn families continued the tradition until it was prohibited by the new communist government in 1949. Enterprising citizens invented a hobbling shoe that mimicked the trademark shuffle of bound feet, thereby providing an alternate route to social standing but the stigma overpowered the appeal. 
Finally, after a millennium of misguided tradition, all Chinese citizens would be on equal footing. At its height, the contorted tradition was practiced by approximately 50% of middle-class Chinese families and nearly 100% of affluent families. All told, the number of Chinese girls that were subjected to foot-binding is numbered in the tens of millions. There are a few hundred foot-bound women who still survive, most of them octogenarians or greater. It is easy to look back at the bygone barbarism and wonder how it was allowed to continue for so long. But it is equally easy to overlook how blind one can be to the pressures of one's own culture. Perhaps one day humanity will learn to recognise the imprudence of inflicting antiquated traditions upon those too young to make up their own minds. Well, everyone, that concludes episode 119 of the Origins podcast. One year since the bloody flood. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you for your support. See you again in episode 120. Bye for now. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.